you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're really going to be uh, all over the place this morning, which, as you know, is not our typical uh, mode of operation, but our kind of core point, main point today, will come from Mark chapter 1. We began this series about six weeks ago, asking the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And just in an effort to quickly review for us, the main things that Mark has conveyed to us throughout this historical gospel narrative include the following. A proclamation of the authority of the very words of Christ. His authority to command the weather. His authority to command brokenness. Even to forgive sins. He has the authority of Almighty God. The authority of the words of Jesus. But also the care of Jesus. We about how He might have all this authority, but if He does not care, namely for us, then... What good does it have, at least for our eternal goodness? For the benefit of us. Then we have the grace of Jesus. We talked about how it was both rugged and sacrificial. How it both, it both confronts us in sin and brokenness, but also is sacrificial in laying its life down. We talked about how the cross... Of Christ and the work of his atonement. And last week we worked through in the book of Mark the resurrection of Jesus and what the resurrection means for us. I hope you've seen some of these key following statements thus far that the gospel is certainly a set of propositions that we must mentally agree with. We've asked the question is it simply that? But it is. Certainly, in part, that. But it's not just that. It's also a set of propositions that we must cherish in our hearts as well. We can agree with something, but if we not, do not cherish this truth, if we do not worship God because of this truth, then, then we are missing a portion of how we interact with the gospel. But also that the gospel is more rich, now hear me, lest I be called a heretic here, The gospel is more rich than simply Jesus, cross, and believe. And and I say it that way specifically because so many of us have relegated or simplified the gospel to essentially those three thoughts. There's a guy named Jesus. He did something on a cross about our sin. And I must believe. Now that is glorious in and of itself, certainly. But the gospel is more than that. For the gospel has authority and it cares for us. Though the gospel is gracious, both ruggedly gracious and sacrificially gracious. The gospel includes dying in your place, a substitute. 
in my place. And it includes God's approval of Christ's work and His promise to resurrect us like Christ someday as well. So the gospel is more than just Jesus' cross believe. But the gospel also, as we continue today, requires something of us. So the gospel is a reality apart from us, but because it is a reality apart from us, and the type of reality that it is apart from us, it requires something of us. If you read in the book of Mark, again, I said we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, we'll get there in a second, but for now, in Mark chapter 8, 31 and 32, it says this, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of, on the things of man. Now, the, again, this is just a, uh, an introductory point here, but the main point of this paragraph is this general idea that God ordained, God foretold, and God subsequently carried out the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, the gospel. That God ordained, foretold, carried out the suffering, the rejection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see in this passage the idea that Jesus has the authority of God. And God had the authority to plan, prophesy, and perform this plan to perfection. Even while caring for others, Jesus suffers rejection and persecution all while showing grace. Then we see the cross where he is killed and the resurrection where his life is taken back up. You see all of these realities in Mark chapter 8. That's what I want you to see. You see the gospel laid out for us in Mark chapter 8 here. There's the gospel. But then the second half in this passage here is Christ's admonition to Peter. And a similar admonition to us. To set your mind on the things of God. So he just gave us, this is the gospel that God has planned and carried out. Now, Peter, you must set your mind on the things of God. Listen, Jesus moves to rebuke Peter in this passage, but not for a lack of mental assent to these propositions. Peter could have easily recounted all of these propositions. He understood these propositions. The problem was that Peter could not accept these propositions. They were not acceptable to him. They were not okay with him. The gospel that Jesus offered was not the gospel that Peter wanted. Peter could not accept a Messiah that would suffer in Peter's place. The, the the implication, like where, where this is going, is a servant who would suffer in his place meant that Peter was not sufficient on his own. Peter rejects this gospel. The gospel 
this one that Jesus was defining was not the Messiah and the gospel that fit Peter's definition, his desires, his hopes. And so what we see here at large, I believe, in Mark 8 is that Peter's heart was not accepting of the gospel. He knew the propositions again, but he could not accept the propositions. He couldn't do it. He didn't want to be any part of it, so much so that he rebukes Jesus for it. He takes him to the side and says, no, this is not the path for you, Jesus. I mean, I mean get, stop, stop for a second. Just think about the audacity of Peter at this moment. Now, I think I want to give Peter a little bit of credit because I think some of it is he wanted to care for Christ. He didn't want Christ to suffer. But if it was just simply Peter's good heart wanting Jesus to be okay, I don't imagine Jesus would have then taken him aside and rebuked him for it. He might have gently said, you know, Peter, I know you love me and care for me, but this is the way it's got to be. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. And so herein lies our problem. I want to quote David Platt here. He says, American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. A nice middle class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants to be balanced, or wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes. We have made Christ, that's in the end of the quote, we have made Christ and his gospel into something other than what he has claimed to be, and we accept that. And that is the gospel we want. In the words of a friend of mine, we have neutered Jesus. We want a gospel that will get us into heaven. A gospel that doesn't require me to give up too much. We want a gospel that helps me not feel too guilty or deals with my shame. One that doesn't require me to lay down too many of my preferences. One that lets me keep a little bit of the worldly things I enjoy. It doesn't press too much upon me. And that is what Peter was doing Let me make Christ into the Savior that I want, not the one He intends to be. This is all based upon the pride of assumption that Peter knows what's best. That he knows what the Savior should look like. And of course, Jesus rebukes him for this. Jesus demanded Peter, and He demands us to accept Him, namely the Gospel as well, on His terms. Not our terms. So much so. Look how Jesus responds to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Did you hear that? To reject the gospel in your mind and your heart. To reject God's planning, prophesying, performing of Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Is to be the same 
with Satan. To reject Christ on his terms is to be the same as Satan. To not set your mind on the things of God is to be one with the devil. Now, I hope that that's really hard to hear. Listen, Peter thought he knew what was best. He had a Jesus neatly defined by his terms. One that wouldn't push him too hard. One that was just enough for him to stay comfortable. Jesus rebukes Peter for essentially claiming his own gospel. This is my way, Jesus. You should go this way. Jesus says, no, that's not, that's the way of man. This is the way of God. And get behind me, for you are like your father, Satan. Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Here we have John the Baptist and such, the beginning of the gospel. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of, G of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we this morning would repent and believe in the gospel. That we would repent and believe in the gospel this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow. And every day going forward until we need not repent any longer. The day we see your son's face. But for today, may we repent and believe. For your glory and for our good. Amen. So today, I, what I want to do is explore for us what it looks like to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. It's not going to be an exhaustive exploration of these two topics, but largely from the book of Mark, an exploration of now what it looks like to walk in repentance and faith. Both the day someone is to be saved, to, to be justified, but also in the walk of salvation. For the rest of your life, this side of eternity, no matter how many days you have left. So the first question I want to ask is, what is repentance? What is repentance? If you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. We'll be there about four verses for, the for this part here. Again, fleshing out Mark chapter 1 and what Jesus says there. I want to give you three aspects from Christ's that inform our understanding of repentance. So three aspects from this passage here that inform our understanding of repentance from Christ Himself. This is not an exhaustive list. The first one is this. True repentance is the death of self-centeredness. True repentance is the death of self-centeredness. Let me put it in, an, in another phrase. If you want to know if you yourself are truly repentant of an issue, 
Or if you want to know if someone else is truly repentant of an issue, is their self-centeredness gone? Mark eight thirty four, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, right? Let him crucify self-centeredness and take up his cross and follow me. Denial, death, following him. Those all go together in a package. Denial, death, following him. Now here's where you and I get in trouble. We think about this in like lofty terms. Like, okay, if someone was to put a gun to my head, would I say, yes, I'll follow Jesus? Yes, I, well, well yeah, I, I think I would do that. Oh, okay, good, check. I got that one down. Thanks, Jesus. I feel good. Mark eight thirty four. Yes, fantastic. But how about in that moment when it concerns you and your wife and her good and her flourishing in Christ? Can you die to yourself there every time? I mean, for some of us, it might be easier. This might sound a little funny. I don't mean it to be funny. Uh, to take the bullet than to say yes every time to the denial of self for the good of our spouse. Listen, those mundane moments get us most of the time. Denial, death, following. We're told here, if we're to follow him, the end of self must come. Jesus is calling us, to put it in other terms, to treasure Him more than anything else. Anything. So that means that in that moment with your spouse where you're called to die to yourself, the only way you're going to die to yourself is if you treasure Jesus in that moment more than anything else. And if you can't die to your spouse in that moment, then you treasure probably many things in that moment more than Jesus himself. We're told to deny ourselves. We're to love him more than life itself. Do you understand that? More than life itself. I was talking to uh, this Christian couple that I love dearly. They don't go to this church. Uh, they go to another church in the area. And uh, early on, I think it was early on in their marriage, they would use this phrase with, uh, like, uh, the husband would use this phrase to encourage a walk of sanctification in his own life when it came to dealing with his wife. And basically the phrase went something like this. <clears throat> well, is it, is it something short of dying? Yes. Okay. I can do it. So what you're asking me to do is something short of death? Okay, I should be able to do that. He's called us, and, and I, I appreciate that phrase, and, and I know they would agree with me. 
but we're called to even die. And the, the crazy thing is that we believe that we would lay down our lives, whether that's for a brother in the faith, or for uh, our spouse, or for a friend, right? Thinking John and our love for one another, and so on and so forth. And somehow, you and I think we would lay our life down for them, should it be required of us, all the while leading up to it, not laying our life down in much easier things. Like we fool ourselves into thinking we would do that when we're not faithful in the easier things. You understand the absurdity of that? Oh yeah, I would take a bullet for you. But I can't die to myself for the half a day here that I need to, to care for you. True repentance looks like denying your flesh Listen, the idea here, if anyone would deny himself and take up his cross. I mean, think about the, the, the uh, picture here that Christ is painting for us. We're to be so centered upon Christ, so committed to Christ, that we look like someone carrying a cross with a smile on their face to every person around them, that we're content with the cross on our back as we follow Jesus. Denying our flesh. This is where understanding like idolatry is so helpful. What does it look like to deny your particular struggle with idolatry? What does it look like? What is, that is what, if, if, whatever that looks like is what the death of self-centeredness is going to look like for you. Which is going to look different than it is for me. And probably to everybody else in this room. Like to one person, self-centeredness could look like being super strict concerning your children. While another person's self-centeredness could look like sitting on the couch and neglecting their children. Depending on your idolatry, what self-centeredness fruits into. Another thought underneath this idea of the death of self-centeredness, Luke 9.23, and this really a applies again to overall repentance. But in 9.23, Luke says, uh, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Jesus here, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? Daily and follow me. So speaking to the mundane moments, the everyday moments of life, to deny himself daily. This is clearly a daily habit, not just a once in a lifetime situation like many of the churches we grew up in taught. These old thoughts, these, this, this, this change, like the idea that you repent and move on in Christianity is not only wrong, but it's horribly detrimental. We have to be denying ourselves. This is just repentance. Denying ourselves daily. Many times, many times, oftentimes many sessions of repentance a day. 
this idea of picking up a cross and following him is like a metaphor describing a change from the inside out. It's a transformation of our thoughts and desires by the Spirit and the Word. These old thoughts and desires need to die in order to follow Jesus. And as many of us know, this process is slow and painful. It's very common, though, as in both in formal counseling, informal counseling, just it's very common. See, in my own life, very common when someone is in sin and they are supposedly repentant, for them to carry out still a measure of self-centeredness. Now, there could be a measure of repentance in there. But usually self-centeredness that's still present in supposed repentance is a marker of worldly grief instead of godly grief. So like, for example, uh, recently I was dealing with this situation in a brother's life. So he gets caught in some sin. Says I'll, And part of it deals with wanting to do something in a couple months that's not necessarily bad, but he shouldn't do this later until the sin is dealt with. And, and the statement is said to the effect, well, you know, I, I will do what I need to, go to counseling, I'll get help, whatever, so long as it's done for that. So long as I can still do that. All right? that, that is just a pure example of worldly grief. Maybe as a recognition of what I did was wrong, but it's not repentance of what I did was wrong. It's not a sorrowful of what I did, what was uh, a recognition of what I did was wrong. True repentance is the death of self-centeredness. We must move on. Number two, the true repentance requires the death of self-safety. Self-safety. There's an abandonment that happens when faith comes along. Mark 8, 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The for in this, in this statement here means the next few verses give us the basis for what Jesus just said in verse 34. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. Those who want to maintain self-safety, those who want to stay comfortable and cozy, those who want to maintain their power and security, those who want to pursue their perfection apart from Christ, those who, this is, these are just, I'm giving examples of what self-safety and the pursuit thereof could look like for you. But he says this, if you pursue those things in the end, you will end up killing yourself. Jesus is saying it's suicide. Literally what he's saying. You choose this path, you die. So when you remember thinking, right, when we're dealing like with source idolatry and comfort and power and all this, think about the, you think about it this way. When you choose this evening that path, you're choosing the path of suicide. You're choosing the path of death. When you want power over the situation versus trusting God, 
you are choosing the path of suicide. You will experience deathly forsakenness for all of eternity. That's the death that Jesus is pointing to. Part of the point here is who who would try to save their own lives? Who who would even attempt this? It would be those who think they can. Those who think they've discovered life through some other means other than God. Those who think that they don't need Christ. The refusal to follow Him is actually suicide. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Jesus knows that Satan is on nothing but a suicide mission. But the one, the one willing to die if necessary, the one willing to go into danger, the one willing to give up security that they find with their own hands, the one that knows they cannot save their own life, This is the one who will in the end be saved. Number three, true repentance will see the death of self-service. It's closely related to self-centeredness, but self-service, verse 36 through 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So, think of it this way. Whatever you're living for is what you are in service to. So this is the profit that you're gaining from the world. Whatever you are, think about that thought, and then the next thought, whatever you're living for is what you're in service to. So an example that I heard someone give was this, living for finances. You're a servant to your finances. Mind is consumed by finances. Always getting and giving advice concerning finances. Always researching ways to save in your finances. Always plotting to improve your finances. Always wheeling and dealing and trying to get the most from your finances. When you give gifts, always trying to maximize the investment in your finances. Living for finances. If that characterizes you or anything else like this, your attempt is to gain the world. The result is the forfeiture of your soul. And this is what you're in service to. But those who are in service to Jesus talk about Him are consumed with Him. You talk to others about Him. Give advice on Him. Always plotting how to talk about Him. Always seeking to improve your relationship with Him and others with Him as well. Always giving hope to those around you, but only hope through Jesus. 
Look what Piper said. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? It's being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. And I would add all those things that we just said, plotting to talk about him and such. Repentance is not about being ashamed. It's about dying to ourselves and living for his glory. It's about leaving our personal comfort behind. Certainly, we, in repentance, there's a measure of shame that we know is, is uh, to an extent. We look at this and go, no, I, I am ashamed of my sin. But repentance turns us towards Christ, of whom we must not be ashamed of. We'll flesh a little bit more of that out in a bit. But looking to Christ, it's, repentance doesn't involve the being ashamed of Christ, which in many ways we functionally live that way. Instead, again, it's about dying to ourselves and living for His glory. It's about leaving our personal comfort behind. It's about looking at His steps to see what our next ones should be. Repentance looks like trusting His ways above our own. It's not service to ourselves, but service to Unto him. Now, let me ask this question. Why would you ever repent? Why would we ever do this? Why? Why would you ever give up your way? Why would you ever stop trying to secure your own safety, comfort, etc.? Why would we ever stop being about myself? Why would we do that? Why would you do that? I mean, we, we talk like this. I mean, listen, I, I know what's best for me. I know how I feel. I've looked at my heart. I've been living with myself for X amount of years. I can decide from my own heart and mind what is best for me, what is right, and what is wrong. I mean, I'm doing all these other good things. I mean, isn't believing the gospel just about staying inside this box, and as long as I do, I can do, say, feel however I want to inside this box? Why would we ever give that up? I mean, no one knows you like you know yourself, right? No one knows what's best for you like you do. Why would we do this? I mean, repentance is the confession at its core that I'm not the most important one, that I don't have the plan of life figured out, that I must lay my life down, and that I'm utterly dependent on someone else other than myself. It is the denial of everything that I just said. How... Can I do this? I mean, seriously, I don't know about you, but this is a heart. Listen, you and I can only do that if we believe that the gospel is true, but that the gospel is more than a set of propositions. That the gospel is a person. That the gospel is a person. So what is faith? What is faith? I want to give you two unique dynamics of faith. Again, from Mark. Two unique dynamics of faith. Mark 5. You, if you want to turn there, Mark 5. will be there just for a few verses. 
Starting in verse 24, I'm not going to read it, but to retell the story, there is this sick, desperate woman who has been consistently bleeding for how many years? Let's see if you're awake. Twelve years. Been awake. He's been awake. Yep, been awake for twelve years. Been bleeding for twelve years. Mark 20, 5, 27, verse 27 tells us that she heard reports about Jesus and she believed them. That's key. She heard reports of Jesus. She believes them. So much so that she thought, if I could just touch even his garment, I will be made well. Now, the order of the belief and then the subsequent beliefs is important. She believed the reports concerning Jesus, and then she believed, if I could just touch him, I would be made well. She believed there is this person. If I could just touch him, if I could just be with him, if I could just lay at his feet, if I could just experience the realness of this person, I would be healed. If I could just touch him. Now again, this is not, if God would just show himself to me, I would believe he's real. That's different. She already believed he was real. She already believed the statements being made about him. She believed he was the one. So that's that's not what's going on here. Here, she already has the faith. She believes that he's real, but she wants more than simply propositions. She wants the person. She wants to touch him. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 34, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Notice, it's not, Jesus does not say to her, daughter, your touching of my garment has healed you. But the faith in the saving power of the person, Jesus Christ, that has healed you. Go. Go be healed. So two unique dynamics. The first one is this. The first step in saving faith is trusting in the person of Jesus Christ who is the gospel himself. Trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, many who believe in their own version of Jesus Christ, not the one in the scriptures. Listen, this is part of the entire point of the gospel of Mark specifically. Mark set out to prove that he is the Son of God. He's not the Jesus that you are looking for necessarily. He's this Jesus. The person, the one whose words have authority, the one who cares for his people, the one who shows sacrificial and rugged grace, the one who laid his life down on a cross, the one who was raised to new life in the resurrection. Let me ask you this question. Was it a proposition whose Words have authority, a proposition who cares for his people, a proposition who shows sacrificial rugged grace, a proposition that dies on a cross. No, it's a person about whom all these propositions are true. It's a person. It's trusting in a person, not simply a set of ideas. Sure, there are many ideas, many truth statements and truth claims that we must believe about this person. But they are not just statements and ideals. They are statements about a person. To believe in the person of Jesus is to also believe necessarily in the propositions. But you can believe in the propositions without believing in the person. 
I think this is where many of us have gotten ourselves in a pickle. We believe in a personless set of propositions. Ideas disconnected from the person, Jesus Christ. And then we cling, when times get rough, we cling to ideas instead of to a person. Or we try to abide, but we only know how to abide in ideas. And we're lost when it comes to abiding in a person who embodies, who is all of these propositions we have discussed. Our faith is in a person who accomplished all the propositions God gave him to do. Here's the reality. There is no salvation through gospel propositions without the gospel person, Jesus Christ himself. You can't like the idea of being saved from hell and dismiss the Christ who died for you. You can't be committed to the saving acts of Jesus without being committed to the person Jesus. Back to Peter. Peter tried to stop the person Jesus from carrying out the gospel and Jesus says, get behind me. Listen, Jesus understood that it was not faith in a list of statements, but faith in a person of whom much has been stated. Let me say that again. Jesus understood that it was not faith in a list of statements, but faith in a person of whom much has been stated. The story continues with growing tension. Mark 5.35 says this, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? That's a key phrase, any further. So he's already been troubling the teacher. Why do it any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. The second step in a saving faith is believing the person of Christ will keep the promises of Christ. The second step or the second unique dynamic of saving faith is believing the person of Christ will keep the promises of Christ. Again, ideals, propositions, can't just keep promises. It takes a person to keep a promise. So this religious leader, here we go with the story, this religious leader asked Jesus to heal his little girl. But then she dies. Then those people encourage the man, just let it go. Just let it go. Stop bothering Jesus about the death of your child. Just let it go. But Jesus says, don't let it go. Don't let it go. Did you hear me? Don't let it go. Believe. Trust me. Trust my promises. Trust who I am and what I have said that I will do. Don't let it go. How many? Listen, when we stray into sin, it's because we've let it go. It's because we've let go of what God has said. It's the same thing that happened in the garden. Adam and Eve let go of what God had said. The serpent came to Adam and Eve saying, don't bother God with this, just let it go. You guys decide for yourself what is good and right and we'll, we'll just let God go. Jesus says, don't let it go. Now think about the situation with me for just a moment. How do you think this man felt? She was dying. He recruits Jesus, and then the girl dies. 
Can you imagine with me for a moment the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual state of this man? The sorrow in his heart. I mean, he just lost his daughter. She's freshly dead. Body still warm. Imagine the potential anger, the potential sadness in this man's heart. But in the midst of this terrible, terrible situation, what does Jesus call the man to do? To trust His words. To trust His promises. Not just promises, to trust His promises. Yes, even in the midst of a terrible situation. Yes, no matter what the circumstances. Trust His promises. Trust His plans. This is in part what saving faith looks like. Trusting. It's belief that Jesus is who He said He is and He will do what He has said He will do. And it's it's an acceptance of what Jesus has said. It's belief that it's true and a welcoming of it into your life. It's a grasping of it as if this is all you have to grab a hold of. This is what I have. This is all that's really mine is Him and what He has promised to do. And that is where I can rest. That is where my hope is. No matter how dark the situation, no matter how terrible, we believe Jesus will accomplish His promises and His purposes. Now, how do we know that God will do this? I want to give you the foundation for all of God's promises very quickly. Here, Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. But we're not going to stop there. But for now, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now this is an incredible verse. I don't have time to... I mean, this verse could be a sermon in, in itself. But one that we should cherish and hold ever so tightly. Ever so tight. But listen, this passage, though, means very little without the verses that come after it. We're very quick to quote this passage. All things work out for, this, for the good, right? Isn't that what everyone says? No one goes on to talk about the verses that follow it. But this verse, 828, is like the foundation to all of God's promises. The verses that follow are the foundation to the foundation of all of God's promises. Without these verses that follow it, we have no foundation. It's like the, I go jump hyper said, it's like the pillars that go deep into the earth's crust that support the foundation of 828. The basis for God's promises to do good, verse 28, is as follows, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's one pillar. Second pillar, and those whom He predestined, He also called. Third pillar, and those whom He called, He also justified. And the fourth pillar, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. These 
pillars provide for us the certainty of this promise that He will work things for the good for those who love Him. Now, again, we don't have time to dive into each of these statements. I certainly would love to. But let's ask this question. Why would Paul string together all these statements? Why make a chain of statements like this? He's doing something with his words, like with the way he's structuring his words. Why would he pile these things together like a chain? Right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why would he do this? Here's the point. Here's why. Paul's point is certainty, confidence, assurance, security. The point is this. God is the one who saves his people from beginning to the end. From beginning, from conception not in the womb, although that's a part of it, but from the conception of the idea of saving all the way to the end of saving. He is the one that carries the entire process from beginning to end. And He really saves them. He doesn't just offer the gospel. He takes the gospel and He saves His people. He doesn't just stand at the door knocking. He rips the door down. And if he can rip the door down, then he can certainly carry out every other part of his promise. He is the one who decisively and perfectly acts from beginning to end so that not one that He has chosen will be lost in the end. Every promise will be kept. The point is this. The chain cannot be broken because He's the one that holds the chain. Not you and I. He does. Hallelujah. He will do good for those He has called. We can believe His promises because all that He, set his, all that he sets His heart upon have been predestined. All the predestined are called. All the called are justified. And all the justified are glorified. The point is to guarantee that everyone in the chain will reach the goal of glory. Everyone. That's why, that's how we can repent of self-safety, self-centeredness, self-service and believe in the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. His words have authority. His words. He cares for you. His grace will rescue you. His cross took the punishment for you and the Father exalted Him in the resurrection. And we will be glorified too.
So repent and believe. Or should I say, believe that this is true. Go repent. Believe in the person Jesus. Believe in the gospel that he is and has done. The promises he has made. For God's saving plan recounted for us by Paul gives us the assurance of God's grace tomorrow so that we might repent and believe in his gospel. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> give us the faith to believe. Give us the, the heart and the mind to say with abandonment, my ways are feeble at best. My understandings are juvenile, infantile at best. Father, my hands, the work of my hands are filthy at best. But Father, your plan, your way, your gospel, your son, his death, his resurrection, your resurrecting power, your wrath pouring on him. All of these things are the way. That first says our way is nothing. Your way is everything. So Father, may we believe. May we believe that those whom you have set your heart upon, that you've predestined them. And if you've predestined them, you, have, you call them. If you call them, you justify them. And if you justify them, they will be one day glorified too. And if we will be glorified one day, surely all things will work out for our good. So may we, in light of that, repent every day. May we deny ourselves every day. May we give up ourselves in self-service for the good of others every day. May we pick up the cross and look to your feet for our next steps every day. May we forsake self-righteousness and by faith believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that it would be the power that we live by each day but that it would also be a sweet, sweet taste to our souls. That the gospel would be the treasure that we hold. But we ask these things for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.